John chapter 4. Start in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave himself, who, pardon, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but... Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem... Is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her. Woman believe me. An hour is coming. When neither in this mountain. Nor in Jerusalem. Will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming. And now is. When the true worshipers. Will worship the father. In spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this extraordinary unveiling of who you are and how we can know you. 
how our life can have purpose beyond just the momentary stuff that we get so caught up with. We thank you for the account of Christ in his human body. He's tired, and yet you have such sweet intentions, such kind intentions to demonstrate your kindness in saving a Samaritan woman. And not just a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan woman who had, it appears, all of her adult life chased uh, the empty hope of happiness in a relationship with a man. God, we thank you for the things that Christ says about himself, the living water, the things he says about you, the things that he does in dealing with a, a needy sinner and what he says about worship. We're amazed that the woman at the well, after hearing all that he has said, talks about the coming of the Messiah who would tell all things. And Christ clearly, without any parable or any, um, any symbolism, just tells this woman what he has not told the Jews. He is the Messiah. God, we know that the rest of the account goes on to show how the rescued woman gladly runs back into the city and tells everyone who will listen to her about your son. Father, we pray that you would be kind to us because you have been kind to so many, that you would be kind to us. God, we ask it because you've been kind to us so often that you would stoop down and stir our hearts as we consider something of the matter of worship. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this evening, we're going to begin uh, what will probably be uh, six services on the theme of worship. So tonight and next Wednesday night, and then after, uh, Sundays, uh, four Sundays. So only two Wednesdays, but the four Sundays. And that's my best guess. I don't generally know exactly how long it will take, but I don't think it will take longer than that because we're not really looking at worship just to look at worship. But remember, we're looking at the, the theme on Sunday mornings of how is it that we follow Jesus of Nazareth? Particularly now, we've been talking about in the matter of obeying God. So not just, not just that you know, Christ was perfectly obedient and we want our feet to be on the path of obedience, but the heart of Christ in that, the delight of Christ in the will of the Father to do what the Father wanted him to do, to um, endure, to embrace what the Father chose for him day after day. When we think about uh, following Christ on the path of obedience, we have to think of God's moral law. And we looked at the first two of the Ten Commandments that we would be, we could summarize it as wholehearted in our love for God. Alone. Not sharing an unshared adoration, an undivided heart. And that we would express that Undivided love 
in a way that was in harmony with what he wants. So not just that we would see his greatness, love his greatness, but then worship or respond to that greatness in a way that was in keeping with his commands. Both of those commands, of course, are at the heart of what we call worship, not just on Sundays and not just uh, in family worship, if you do family worship, and not just in private worship, you know, your quiet times, where, wherever you carve out time just to be alone with the Lord as you sing or pray, as you study. Those are wonderful expressions of worship, but really a love that is expressed to God through every appropriate channel of life. So a life of wholehearted love for the one true God alone that is expressed in a way that is pleasing to him. Tonight, we're just going to do a, a, really a quick overview of some of the big themes in worship. We'll do that by asking some important questions and trying to get the answers. And then what we'll do in the following services is go back to some of these themes and add some new ones and slow down and look at key passages that help us to know how is it that God would be pleased to be worshipped? And is there a type of worship that God rejects? And there is. So let's start by just kind of getting a definition of worship, and then we're going to ask some questions, all right? So the definition. It seems to me that we probably, most of us have probably grown up in, you know, some religious context. And so when we think of the word worship, you automatically think of Sunday mornings. And maybe you limit it to that. I mean, I know that we know probably that worship is, includes more than Sunday morning. But I mean in practice. If someone said, how was worship this week? You, you, your mind automatically goes to Sunday mornings. And even in Sunday mornings, there, there's kind of a tighter focus or a, a more strangulating limitation. We tend to think of the singing in the service as worship. It's rare for a person to talk about worship in church and you find out that they're talking about corporate prayer. It's rare for them to talk about the teaching or preaching of God's word as worship. So we tend to limit the idea of worship, I think, in, in ways that the scripture does not limit it. So we want to get a good definition for worship, basic definition. And if we can go back and look at the words that the Bible uses in the Hebrew and the Greek, which are words that our English translators translate worship, then I think that will help us get a wider picture. And Sunday morning, we're going to be looking particularly at the theme of, you know, how far does worship go in the life of a Christian? So we'll only mention that tonight. We'll save that for Sunday. Well, there are three main words in our Bibles, in the original languages, that give the uh, concept of worship, you know, some concrete shape, all right? Number one, worship comes from a word meaning to show reverence for God. That is, to recognize 
When we look at God, when we think of God in, this, in, you know, in Scripture, when our, when our hearts go toward Him, the Christian is immediately aware that there just isn't anyone else like God. So we could say another uh, description of this would be the fear of the Lord. To stand and to be gripped with awe, to be filled with reverence for who God is. To be so aware of the perfections and the majesty and the, and the amazing humility that God would stoop down to us. I mean, you, you have to take all of it. The love and the loveliness of God becomes so clear to us as we read the scriptures, believing the Bible, that really, I guess we would say, this word could be described today, we could say, a biblically informed, holy wonder. Just kind of jaw-dropping. Seeing the worth of God and being mesmerized by it. Now, I want to say something that I think probably sounds a bit unthinkable in church. You know, there are certain things that we just don't say in a church building. But while it is certainly probably an unspeakable thing, it is something that I probably sneaks into our hearts. And that is this. I think that we are often tempted to think when we look at what the Bible says about worship, especially as we see it expand far beyond Sunday morning to include all the Sabbath, far beyond the Sabbath to include all the days, it is easy to feel that what you're giving God in worship might be just a little more than he should demand. But nobody would come to church and say, I'm here again. This is the fourth time this month. And, you know, I really feel like I've gone above and beyond what God deserves. So we, we wouldn't talk that way. But we can feel that way. When we see what the scripture says about uh, uh, that wholehearted devotion of our life to God and what he deserves, what he demands, it is easy in our selfishness to quietly think that God might be asking a bit more than he should. When Christ met the woman in Samaria at the well, you remember he said to them, he said to her, if you're going to worship the Lord, the big question is not this mountain or Jerusalem. All right? The time has now come that that is not the issue. But the issue is that you must worship the God that really is. The one that the Jews know. The one that's described in the Bible. The Samaritans had altered the Old Testament. And their view of God, therefore, was altered. So Christ has to say, the Jews do know who it is to worship. You have a wrong idea. You must worship God in spirit and in truth. It must be by the Holy Spirit, a thing that flows from within your spirit, the heart, the core. And it must be guided by and fueled by the truth. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So their worship, unless it was an overflow of a biblically informed holy wonder or 
reverential awe, it wasn't acceptable to God. Second word. Another word for, that we translate worship is a word that means to bow down. And again, I think these two words are, we, we're not surprised at all to be, you know, to, to stand amazed at God when we look at his worth, to bow down. That, those are ideas that fit worship. The word to bow down, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, people come in, in a sense into contact with the presence of God, and they gladly bow down. But think of the, think of the, the, the humility to be aware of who God is in such a way that instead of kind of stiffening your neck and saying, I don't want to surrender to him, you gladly bow the knee to the king. And of course, bowing down with your body means nothing to God if... The heart is not bowed. To be so aware of the worth of God that you gladly see yourself as insignificant. You even forget yourself as you focus on him and you are glad for him to be everything. So, reverential awe to stand amazed at the greatness of God and bowing down. There is a third word, and this is the one that I think we don't expect, and it is the one that expands our view of worship to fit the Bible's view, and that is the word service. In the Old Testament, we frequently find the Hebrew word for serving translated worshiping. Not always. It depends on the context. It's not just a special word. It's just a word for serving. But sometimes it's translated worship and sometimes it's translated serving. And sometimes it's translated serving. But when you read the context, you realize, the pre like, for example, a priest serving in the temple. Well, that's part of worship. The word for serving, translated worship, teaches us that worship is something that really requires our activity. You can't come and be passive. When you think about the Old Testament, all the verses about the tabernacle, all the verses about the temple, they describe what things need to be made of and what clothes are going on a priest. And Chuck, uh, a number of months ago and last year was talking about, I think it was last year, was talking about in Leviticus, you know, what about the sacrifices and what do they teach us about Christ? And you think of all the precision, the calendar dates and when things are to be done and who's allowed to do them and which tribe does this. And when, when you look at this tribe, which people do this from that tribe and how old do they have to be? All that detail. And you know that not once do we read that there is a chair in the temple or in the tabernacle. The priests leading worship were constantly serving, working. When we come together on Sunday morning, you really, I know that we wear our church clothes, and that's nice. I, I don't want us to come like beach bums, but, which is why the air conditioners always said it like 42, you know. We, we are the most moral church because you wouldn't dare dress 
scantily in this church, you would just, you would get frostbite. That's extra, that's free. All right, so when we look at coming together on Sunday, you really ought to come spiritually in work clothes to remind yourself, I've come to serve the Lord and people. But we start with the Lord. That means that worship can include every activity that the Christian is commanded to do with other believers, at work, at home, you know, at Walmart, at the soccer field, it doesn't matter. Everything we do that is flowing out of an awareness of God's worth, that is guided by God's word, can be as much an act of worship as prayer or song or preaching on Sunday morning. That doesn't mean that that replaces prayer and song and preaching on Sunday morning, but it means that it is of the same, in the same category. In the Old Testament, and again, we'll talk about this Sunday, but I want to point this out. You know, in the book of Zechariah, it talks about when the Messiah comes, a strange thing will occur. When the Messiah comes, he will do things that causes the pots and the pans in a believer's home to be as holy as the special bowls and, and, and utensils were in the temple. And when the Messiah comes, the bells on the harnesses of the horse, your workhorse, so, you know, modern day we would say the tractor, the tires on your tractor, the bells on the harness of a horse, that they would be holy. What we learn there and what we learn from the word serve is that every aspect of the Christian life has now been brought into the realm of worship. That is, Everything can be done out of love for God. Everything can be done by the help of God. Everything can be done with God. Everything can be done for God. Anything that you can do that is done as an expression of love to the God of the Bible is an act of worship. It doesn't have to be particularly religious. It's not exactly what we're doing, but often how we're doing it. Every act of loving service that is guided by what the scripture says, whatever arena of life we're in, so how we act when we go home tonight is worship or not worship. Just like when we come together on Sunday morning, if we're guided by what the scripture says, it's worship. If we're not guided by the scripture, it's not worship. But for the Christian, the work of Christ guarantees that everything we do can be an expression of worship. So we can sum it up. Worship has a root system and it has fruit or root and result. The root is that we have an awareness as believers, we have an awareness of the worth of God and that changes everything. Then the result is we respond to God's worth, heart and mind, and choices in a way that reflects that worth and God is pleased. Now, when we're talking about what is worship, we need to add a couple of words to our question. So not just what is worship, but what is acceptable worship or what is 
pleasing worship. What is appropriate worship? And for that, we want to ask a couple questions. The who, the how, and the why of worship. Now, I don't think that we'll look at anything tonight that is uh, you know, new for any believer who's been a believer for some period of time. But the things that we look at tonight, as common as they are, as well known as they are, we're taking the time to look at them because in the weeks that follow, I want us to look at things that might not be so common in our mind. And for us to really apply them, you're probably going to have to be clear on these things. So these form kind of our starting point. All right? These are the, 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 the starting gate. Well, who, how, and why? Who? Who can worship the living God? I think that we are all, you know, tempted to believe a lie that if the, the worship we offer God, think of Sundays, if that kind of worship is heartfelt enough, is sincere enough, if you could say, I'm 100% in, in, in this act of worship, you know, undivided. We have such high views of ourselves that we think, if I'm earnest and passionate about this, God could never find this displeasing. God would never reject my worship. But that is not true. There is an infinite gap between the, uncreate, the uncreated God and the created man or woman or young person. And even as a believer, what we bring to the Lord has to be guided by what he says we are not big enough to bring him anything that you know, equals what he deserves. So we come, of course, through Christ, but we come through Christ, according to Scripture, bringing God what he has expressed delight in. That begins with who. Who you are makes your worship fit. Appropriate, pleasing, or unfit, inappropriate, displeasing. That's not all there is to what goes into appropriate worship, but that's a good starting place. Everyone owes God worship. It doesn't matter whether we're atheists or Muslims or Hindus or Christians. Everyone owes God worship. And God will hold us accountable to that. We won't reach the end of time and and God say, well, I commanded you to worship me, to be aware of my worth, to live as a response to that worth. And you refused. No one will be able to say, well, but I didn't go to that kind of a church, God. I went to a different type of church. I went to a different religion. Or I, I didn't know that was for me. Or I'm a sinner and I can't, I can't do anything good on my own. And all of those excuses will be wiped away. The only question will be, did we obey or did we not obey? But while everyone owes God worship because of who he is, only those who are in Christ will be able to do what they're commanded to do. Because it is in Christ that God does something so wonderful, not only for us, but in us. Christ's work for us, outside of us, 
so that we can draw near to God without being destroyed, so that we could be brought to the God of the Bible and could lay our childlike, our best expressions of love at God's feet and God would find them pleasing, that we can really live with God and for God so that everything in the life, like Paul says to the Colossians and to the Corinthians and you know, everything you do, whether you eat or drink, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. Live in everything that God is giving you to do. Live in a way that reflects his worth. To do that, God must do something for us so that those that were his enemies are made his friends. He must cleanse us. He must bring us close. He must reconcile us to him and himself to us. And Chuck talked about this Sunday. God must remove the thing that has broken the friendship. And so placing your sin on Christ and you embracing that Christ and that being applied to your life, there is no impediment to a holy God stooping down to you. If you will, take up a hymnal and look at Hymn number five. There are so many examples in our hymnal that we would never get out of here tonight if we looked at all the best ones. But hymn five is one that most of you remember singing. The hymn writer says, Eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be when placed within thy searching sight. It shrinks not, but with Calm delight can live and look on thee. The spirits that surround thy throne may bear the burning bliss. That, 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 you know, indescribable, holy happiness of being with God. But that is surely theirs alone. Since they have never, never known a fallen world like this. Well, we might think, well, the angels, they can come up to God and they can worship God. But not people like us. Verse 3, how shall I, whose native sphere, all right, the place I grew up in, it's dark, whose mind is dim, sin outside of me, sin inside of me. How can I before the ineffable God appear and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated beam? How can I bear to stand before God and let him look at me? And, and I don't even, you know, I don't weave together my little coverings to to try to hide the shame. There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, right? What God did for us, but then more what God does in us, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. These, these prepare us for the sight of holiness above, the sons of ignorance and night, that's us, can dwell in the eternal light, that's God, through the eternal love. The only way for any of Adam's children to be able to worship God in a way that God finds acceptable is for that child of Adam to be in Christ. And in Christ, all that he has done is applied to you. And the worst sinner can come to this holy God clean. Without God's work for us through the Son, we could not come. We would be barred 
we'd have no access to God. We would be like people at a distance saying religious things and the God that we're talking to, we're nowhere near him. But without the spirit of Christ in you, you would not want to worship. When we think of worship, we're going to talk about the why, but it's motivated by love. And who but a Christian wants to come near to the living God for the purpose of expressing love. Before we're Christians, we might think we want to come near to the God of the Bible in order to get him to do something for us. He seems very useful. You know, if there is a God like that, I need that kind of a helper. And so I intend to come to him and I join a church. I say my prayers. I give my money. I do whatever the church tells me good people are supposed to do because I hope at the end of the process that I will be, you know, in the club and that God will be beneficial to me. But the idea of just coming to God solely to express love to one who is infinitely lovely does not enter our minds until God conquers us. Look at Philippians 3. Paul is having to deal with troublemakers in the church. The Jews of his day are saying, you know, the Jew, we call them Judaizers. So they would claim to be Christian, but they're mistaken. And the heart of the mistake is they don't understand how sufficient the work of Christ is. So their cure for Gentiles is something like this. It's great that you have embraced Jesus of Nazareth. That's good. But you're a Gentile. So we probably need to explain to you that you also need to embrace Jewishness and everything that goes along with Jewishness, all the old covenant. And Paul's preaching that the new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete and that the fullness of Christ has made adding to Jesus and, uh, you know, a moronic impossibility. Who would even try? Hasn't really sunk into the Judaizers. They just think that Paul's not clear. Maybe Paul's forgotten what it is to be a Jew. So Jesus plus Jewishness. And Paul writes to the Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Then verse 2, he gives the warning. Beware. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. What's he talking about? We know that he's probably not saying, watch out for dogs in the church service. He's talking about people whose spiritual character is like a dog. Uh, you know, it's an unclean animal. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Those that physically are circumcised because they're children of Abraham physically, but it's false because they're not children of Abraham spiritually. Verse 3, then he says something about a Christian. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there's a quite a simple definition of a child of God. True circumcision, Colossians chapter 2, not a circumcision that men's hands, that the doctor does, 
to a human body, to the little child, to the boy, but a spiritual circumcision that the hands of God does to the heart. Here's a Christian. Here's a truly circumcised person. It's a person whose heart has been circumcised. You have a new heart. You're alive in Christ. You've been born again. But then he goes on to say more. We also, in this newborn identity, we worship in the spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in what we can do. Only those who are alive in Christ, who worship by the work of this Holy Spirit within us, and who glory in Christ and not ourselves, only those are Christians, Paul says. I wonder if you have ever felt how hopeless it is outside of Christ. It's what we are outside of Christ that is so offensive to God because it, we are sinners. And what we're doing that offends God is simply flowing out of that polluted stream. The unbeliever owes God obedience and worship, but will never be able to approach that God and will not want to approach that God and worship him apart from the work of Christ. Without the rescue, without the new identity, without the new you, without the circumcised heart, our worship would be no more acceptable to God than a Muslim bowing down five times to Allah. When I was flying to Kenya, uh, the place I stay in Kenya, normally the pastor's house, um, there are a lot of strange noises in the night. It's kind of out in the country. Um, it's not jungle. But it's not in the city. And so there's a donkey that stays right by my window every night. Every trip I've gone, except for this one, because we didn't stay with the pastor this time. There was a donkey. And it would bray at the window, you know. And so it, it would wake me up repeatedly. Then there were, there were roosters that would, you know, when the sun was coming up, they would join. There was a mosquito always, but there was also this strange noise from a loudspeaker in Arabic for the Muslims. And they would wake up and they would bow. I didn't hear that this time because I was in a hotel, but on the flight over, there was a man, an older man that didn't speak hardly any English. So I was helping him with the, um, trying to like help, you know, with gestures, help him to understand what the stewardess was asking him. And um, as I was trying to help him, I noticed that when a little alarm went off on his watch, he, he started bowing. He's a Muslim. Does God accept that as pleasing, acceptable worship? Well, we would say, well, no. But our worship outside of Christ would be no more pleasing. Let's move to the next question. And these are shorter. Not just who, but how. Well, John 4, Christ says, in spirit and truth. I want to focus on the truth part. The truth about God, his perfections, his character, his actions, his claims. Those things have to fuel the heart of worship. It's those things about God 
that make the mind and the heart and the will to all gladly join in in expressing the worth of God to God. The truth about God, the truth about us. We are not fit, but he makes us fit because we also have the truth of the cross. And we know that we've been brought near through Christ, adopted into the family, washed, never again to be stained in the sight of a holy God, enduringly preserved by his spirit. The truth about all that God desires. What does the scripture say about worship? These are the truths that, are, that form the foundation of our worship. All of that goes into any type of worship that pleases God, whether it's doing everything as unto the Lord at work or in the kitchen or whether it's preaching, singing, praying in church. It has to be based on truth. It can never be that our feelings and our, what we think would be best is the guide for the how we worship. What we learn from God's word fashions and fuels all true worship. Truth, God's truth, studied, believed, lived on, is at the heart of every true expression of worship. Truth fuels our thoughts about God's worth. Truth fuels our love for this God. Truth fuels actions that are pleasing to God. That is why in a Protestant church, Bible teaching or preaching is always at the heart of the service. That is why Protestant architecture looks the way it does. I mean, churches look really different, but generally speaking, if you're going to a Protestant church, it will have one of these types of things in the middle. Even if it's a plexiglass thing or a music stand, or it's a fancy old thing like this. This came from a Catholic monastery, but the pulpit will be in the middle. In a Catholic church, the pulpit is not in the middle. In a Catholic building, there will be a, a, an, a Eucharist table because they believe that celebrating the Lord's Supper and the way that they do that is the key to worship, and we believe that truth is the key to worship. That is why Paul says to the Ephesians, when he talks about singing, in Ephesians 5.19 he says, speaking to one another in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Why? It's, it's singing is part of the way that we convey truth. We sing hymns or psalms that tell us true things about God and we express it. So when we're singing it, our hearts and minds are captured. We choose to sing it back to the Lord he is honored by what we say, but the person sitting next to you is also helped. Years ago, there was a young couple, some of you might remember them, who came up from Louisiana when there was a hurricane. It's probably almost 20 years ago. And they lived here for a couple years and then they went back. When they came here, they had, neither of them had grown up with any good Bible teaching. One I, they, one, I think, was nominally Catholic and one was nothing. So 
when they got interested in God, they went to different kinds of churches. They went to a charismatic or Pentecostal kind of church. And, and, they, and then as they read their Bible, they felt that that wasn't really biblical. And then they went on and on and, until they found a church that they felt was teaching the Bible. The hurricane drove them up north. They got a job up here and they came here. And so I met with them. I remember Misty and I talking with them in our living room. And I said, now look, I know that you haven't grown up in church. So the hymns are probably going to be pretty hard for, and they interrupted me. And they say, are you about to apologize for your hymn book? I said, well, yeah, a little bit. And they said, don't ever apologize for that hymn book. And I said, why? And they looked at each other and then they said to us, you could get saved reading that hymn book. There's so much truth in it. They said, the church we came from, we just sang, you know, maybe a chorus that had some truth, but we just repeated it over. It wasn't truth-centered. I think there's a lot for us to think about as we consider how to give God our best together on Sunday morning. But we cannot adjust this. Worship has to be truth-oriented in the teaching and in the singing. That's the how. Finally, the why. Well, love. We've already been hitting on this. You remember that Paul said to the Romans that love is the fulfillment of the commands. In other words, if you could love God perfectly and you could love your neighbor perfectly, you would be perfectly keeping every command that there is in the Bible. Just by the very nature of love's activity. But we get confused. We don't know what love would be in a certain situation. We, we are easily deceived and, you know, the fog comes up and we, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so God lays for our feet the perfect path in his word. When we are rescued from our fate, and when Christ has changed out your old stony heart for a soft heart, opened your eyes and freed you from the chains of selfishness, you turn to him in love. It doesn't matter what your conversion experience was. That's not the important question. But when you believe and repent, when you turn away from and turn toward when you are made alive in him and by faith are united to him, you will turn to him in love. And when you turn to him in love and see him as he is for the first time, so to speak, you want to express his worth. You delight in his worth. You're glad to speak to him about his worth and to tell other people about his worth. Think about human relationships. Love wants to please the person that we love. So love wants to please the loved one. Love doesn't, isn't satisfied to appear to please people. It wants to really please people. I mean, there are things that we do in human relationships where we want to appear to be very kind and thoughtful people, even though we're not very kind and thoughtful. But when it comes to love, people that we love, 
We want them to really be pleased. Now, in human relationships, because of our imperfection, there's always the danger that that will be guided by what, by what they say. They say, well, if, if you love me, you do this. And it may not be a loving thing to do. Or it may be guided by what you want to do. I do love you, but I don't like to do that. So can I do this instead? I buy misty antique books sometimes. I think she'll be thrilled with those old leather Puritan books. She does read my books. But you know, that really probably isn't a gift for Misty. When we come to loving God, we want him to be pleased with what we bring him. We're not satisfied now that we're Christians to just appear to be people who are concerned with pleasing God. We want to know from him that he knows that we love him. And he is pleased, even though it's a child bringing, you know, a parent a gift and the child's gift. It's not very impressive, but it's the best a child can bring. So we bring our childlike expressions of adoration to God through his son, and he's pleased. Because we love him, we want to please him. Now, of course, for a Christian, there's still selfishness, even in our relationship with our God not on his part, but our part. We are so imperfect. But the fact that you belong to God guarantees that his work for you and in you will result in you worshiping. He explains in the book, what does worship look like? And he gives you eyes to understand. He explains in this book why we would want to worship him. And he gives you a heart that's in agreement. And then he works in you by his spirit Day by day by day by day until you see him face to face and the possibility of sin is removed. Every day he's working in us to desire and to do exactly what he's explained. So he guarantees we will worship him. There are other motives we know for expressions that look like worship. There is Probably the most popular would be, you know, the bribe. Sunday mornings we come and we're like good Roman Catholics. We're showing up on Sunday and we're giving and we're doing. And, you know, we're pleasant and everybody praises us except God because we're here to bribe him, not to give out of love. There's a very big difference between when you give your spouse something out of love and when you give your spouse something small so that a moment later you can hit them with a big request and then they realize all of that was just to manipulate me. We come to God. If you come to bring a little worship on Sunday so that it will place you in a category where God might owe you a little favor down the line. I know we don't think that Sunday morning gets us out of hell, but what human doesn't show up every Sunday or every Wednesday as well? And, at the, and, and in your mind, are you not tempted to think, well, that doesn't mean I have an indulgence to go live any way I want to live, but are you not tempted to think that if you did, God would be a little more lenient with you than with the person that never got out of bed on Sunday? We are all such good Pharisees. Worship can't be a bribe. That's all about me, all about you. Real worship forgets us for a moment and is 
all about him. Love, another part of the reason why is the worth of God. We don't worship God as Christians because he makes us or commands us. He commands us. Maybe I should say it this way. God is not worthy of your worship because he's commanded you. Even if there had never been the command to worship God and how to worship God, every believer from within would know when I see him as he is in the scripture, when I, when I see what he says about himself and what he's done, I want to express his worth. So I would almost be able to write the command in my own Bible in the margin. I should worship this being, even though he never perhaps had put that in my Bible. But he has put it in the Bible. But it's in the Bible because he is worthy. The reason we worship the Lord is because of his worth. It is just the most reasonable thing that when you meet that being, you are gripped, you are humbled, you devote yourself to that being. It is the most reasonable, the most unreasonable, unthinking response is that we would see God in the Bible and continue to live for our worth. You know, sin is really just us living, expressing our bigness, our importance. And worship is living gripped by his importance. If the Bible's descriptions of worship seem unreasonable to you, it is because you have not believed what the Bible said about how big, how good your God is. We don't know the measure of God's greatness. He's infinite. We can't comprehend infinity. So God has stooped down, and in the Bible, he's written in a way that you and I can understand, the way our little brains can grasp it. He has explained to us things about himself. He's explained that it's inexpressibly good, that he's beyond full comprehension. And when we read that, you have a choice. Either you believe that what God says about himself is true and you're gripped and your heart is bowed and your life is devoted or you disagree and say, I don't know if God is that good and what flows out of that life is a, is a life of self-centeredness. I haven't said anything tonight that's new for us, but as I said, it will be foundational for what follows. But let me say this. From today until Sunday, why not make it our goal to set our heart, our face, our feet, you know, afresh to wake up and to live gripped by his worth and responding in whatever situation you're in, strife in the home, strife at work, or a pleasant day, to pass through those moments gripped by the worth of God and making choices that, according to Scripture, show others God's worth. Fill up your mind, fill up the heart with passages from the Bible that speak of Him in a way that grips you. And I would suggest that if you have uh, one of our hymnals at, the, at your home, 
or other hymnals that are, there are many good hymnals. Look at the hymns. Look at the psalms. Look at how others, when they are, in a sense, confronted with the goodness and greatness of God, look at how it changes them, how they respond. Generally, we learn from example. So in other words, we could give, you know, weeks and weeks of principles for worship. But really, while that's not bad, nothing helps like walking into a room full of people who are worshiping Christ. And you think, oh, that's what it looks like. That's worship. You can benefit from the psalmist. You can benefit from old hymn writers. You can see them worship. And we'll come together Sunday and look at that in light of all of life. How wide does it spread? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for doing things for us and in us that make us able to worship you and make us want to worship you. Thank you for revealing your word. So there's no question about which of us ought to be lived for, me or you. Thank you that it takes our lives out of the emptiness and the purposelessness of chasing a momentary sense of peace or fun. And our lives can be part of something infinitely greater. And God, thank you for spelling out in your word and then giving us so many examples of men and women and children who, by your kindness, were brought to know you and their lives were lives of worship. We want to be a people who aren't just captivated with concepts or emotionally moved by thoughts of Christ. We want to be people who, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do it for love of you, for your glory. Help us, God. Teach us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a good week.